You're listening to the Open-Handed Bible Podcast, a program dedicated to engaging scripture, embracing mystery and ambiguity, and uncovering a deeper, richer story. I'm Adam McBroon. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, we'll kick off our series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis and look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation stories. We'll examine these stories to see if they're telling us something more than just the old fight of creation versus evolution. We'll look at what these stories tell us about God and also about us. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to our second episode. That's right, we made it for another one. We haven't gotten canceled yet. So, as always, you know, our aim in this podcast is to examine passages of Scripture and to kind of back away from the traditions that we've always been fed or means that kind of seem more or less fixed in our minds and just try to open up the door to more possibility to hold it with an open hand instead of this closed, clenched grip. And instead of trying to force it to mean something, to just read the scripture, let it interpret itself, see if there's different ways of looking at it, and see what we can get out of that, maybe quite possibly even get more out of it. So, of course, you know, we're kicking off our series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And, of course, we're going to start at the beginning. The beginning, beginning, creation. So, right away with Genesis, you know, we kind of, especially in America, we tend to relegate it to just the creation story, when really creation is such a small part of it, and then everything, the bigger part of it is, of course, the formation of ancient Israel through the patriarchs. But we seem to fixate on the creation part, especially with this fight of creation versus evolution. And uh, I think when we do that, we lose a lot of the goodness that's really in the book of Genesis. But I think we also lose a lot in the creation story. I think we tend to lose a lot of the meaning when we argue over the method, whether we're arguing about whether everything happened in seven literal days or whether it was spread out over time, whether everything should be taken literally or whether these are literary devices that are figuratively telling a story, how are we supposed to look at it? I mean, do we, does our faith depend on sticking with one view or are we able to look at different possibilities? Personally, I think looking at different possibilities is a very good and beneficial thing for us and that we can actually get a bigger view of the world, a bigger view of us, and a bigger view of God through this. I think when we look at this, the creation stories, that the point isn't how God created the world. The point is that God created the world. And that we need to take our eyes off of methodology really put them on God, and maybe we'll get a bigger story out of this. So let's go ahead and and look. So, of course, I'll be using the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. So, of course, we start with the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a loaded verse right there. It's just stating emphatically, in the beginning, it all came from God. And, I mean, whether... 
you believe young Earth or old Earth, whether you believe in evolution or not, whether you believe the creation story should be taken literally or figuratively, it all comes from one origin point, that point being God. Uh, I mean, there's some questions we can ask about Ask about this, though. I mean, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, are we talking about the whole of creation from that point? Like the, uni- the world, the universe, everything? Or is it just referring to earth? Was there a bunch that was already made? And we're just fixating on this one little window in the Milky Way in the solar system that we happen to live in? Or is it everything? Although, does it matter? Does it matter, you know, whether heavens and the earth means just the whole thing or one little tiny bit of it? So, you know, like I said, let's let's not lose everything in the methodology. Let's open ourselves up to questions. Now, this is where stuff gets uh, pretty crazy and pretty good. And I think we tend to skip over this part right here. So, going into verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. There is evening and there is morning. One day. So, I mean, of course, you know, people tend to get in squabbles over the um <clears throat> the let there be light part you know some believe that it could have very well been the big bang or some to believe um some believe in the words of uh robin williams that god just said click or you know you know that one bumper sticker they had in the 90s the uh the big bang god god spoke and bang it happened but i mean which way do we look at it? Of course, I think we fixate on that part and we forget the beginning part of that. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So, we have a picture of this formless, empty, primordial, watery stuff. And that God's Spirit hovers over it. So, what do we make of that? So, you know, going back into ancient Hebrew tradition, when we see references to the sea, it's this very chaotic, threatening thing. The sea was this very dangerous, very chaotic, threatening place, full of unknown creatures, full of some pretty scary stuff, very prone to chaos, to storms, to... um a lot of uh, threatening unknowns, and it was a pretty good place to get yourself killed. So, the sea was this very threatening, foreboding thing, full of chaos. Sea was often a metaphor for chaos, and often the sea, the chaos of the sea, was personified in this idea of this powerful beast, this monster known as Leviathan. And of course, Leviathan is this sea monster that we see <clears throat> allusions to throughout Scripture. But it was also, besides being just a sea monster, it was also sort of a personification for the sea and all its chaos and threateningness. 
and everything. It was this very scary, monstrous thing. And so Leviathan was kind of a personification of this watery, watery chaos. But throughout Scripture, in different places, we see God just destroying, beating up, absolutely dominating Leviathan. There's two places in particular that I love. One is in Job 41. Say, um, you know, you have Job, this epic poem about God's relation to man and man's view of God. And in chapter 41, during the arc where God is interrogating Job, you have one chapter that's God talking about Leviathan. So there's some pretty cool stuff here. Um, I'll read a bit starting from verse 1. Can you pull Leviathan? Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook or tie a tongue, tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain for him or divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or lay his or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. He, you will remember the battle and never repeat it. Any hope of capturing him proves false. Does a person not collapse at the very sight of him? No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? Who confronted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So you have this idea of God dominating Leviathan, of this powerful, chaotic, monstrous sea beast just completely subservient to God as a pet. I mean, that's wild. And then if you look at Psalm 74, you have this other amazing reference to Leviathan, starting from verse 12. God, my king, is from ancient times, performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters into waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert. So, you have this idea, too, of God just absolutely dominating this chaos, this Leviathan, this personification of the chaos of the waters. That you have this powerful, primordial, chaotic force, and that God just dominates it. And it goes further from there. If you look, starting at verse 6, back in Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. So, you have first God placing this firmament, this divide, the sky, between the waters above and the waters below. And of course, you know, we're getting into Hebrew cosmology here, ancient, you know, Near Eastern cosmology, which <clears throat> they believed in this idea of like a sea above and a sea below. But we have here that God is just dominate, again dominating this watery chaos and taking these big bad Leviathan waters and dividing them, telling them where they can and can't go. 
and then it gets even better. So, going here to verse 9, Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. So, then right there you have another example of God taking this chaos and further humiliating it by taking this already divided, big, bad, watery, leviathan chaos and relegating it into this one area, saying, all right, you can go here, but no further. And then it take, it calls the area where it's limited, where it can't pass, land. And then to further humiliate this sea of chaotic death, that the land that God barred the sea from, God produces life, God produces vegetation on it. So you have this chaos that God is dominating at every turn, that this big, bad, threatening thing of, of unknown, of death, this force of Leviathan, that God is just dominating it, bossing it around, that God is supreme over it. We have this picture of God supreme over chaos. I mean, already getting into this, we see this amazing thing in creation. We see this grandiose poetic story with this vivid imagery of God starting out just absolutely beating the crap out of chaos, out of Leviathan, telling it where it can and cannot go, then making life to spite the chaos, and then making more from there. And then, of course, we see this process of creation as it goes forth from there. So, you know, from here, you know, we can ask certain questions, and we've heard them ask before. You know, is there a possibility that the creation story that we have, as we have it here in the theory of evolution, does it line up? I mean, you have let there be light, which could, which could very well be the Big Bang. You have this primordial, watery, unstable earth, and then you have stability coming to it. You have land that comes up. You have light and dark. You have the sun and the moon. Then you have life mm -hmm. springing up. You have, you know, more life produced there. You know, sea life, birds. Then you have the beasts of the earth, and then capping off with humanity. So, you know, is there is there a possibility that those two things line up, or are we missing the point of the story even further? I mean, is there a bigger story than than all this? Is this bigger than creation? and evolution and if so how much bigger so are there different ways or different vantage points of looking at this so let's look at this from another angle and the angle we'll look at is looking at something called the Enuma Elish so the Enuma Elish is essentially the Babylonian creation story. 
Earth's dating is somewhere between 1800 to 1100 BC or BCE, depending on which scholar you ask. And um, this is believed to have been a ritual text, probably read aloud during New Year festivals in Babylon. And it, like I said, it's the Babylonian creation story, and it tells the story of a conflict between Marduk, the king of the Babylonian gods, and Tiamat, this um, primordial being of chaotic waters. And it kind of tells this idea of this huge battle between them and how the created world came out of that. So, basically the idea is that there's this huge battle between Tiamat and Marduk. And that at the end of this battle, that Marduk uh, rips Tiamat in half. And then from the two halves of Tiamat, creation comes out of that. And then... Following that, Marduk makes Earth, and specifically Babylon, as a temple to himself, and then makes humanity from the blood of another lesser god to serve him as slaves in that temple. So, so it's believed by scholars that much of Genesis, in fact, probably much of the New Testament, was written and compiled either during or following the exilic period, you know, during the time that Jew the Jews were exiled to Babylon. And of course, this would be a time when they're probably surrounded by Babylonian culture, surrounded by Babylonian religion, by Babylonian mythos, and really trying to hold on to their identity. So beginning to write down and record these stories and scriptures would have been a way for them to maintain their national and religious identity. And these are also likely stories that, up until the point of them being written down, that these would have been mostly passed down during, you know, through oral tradition. That instead of, um, the, you know, these are passed down less than the form of, like, opening some book. It's like, this is how this happened, and more the form of, Papa, tell me a story. So... It's like we see a very story-driven culture, and this is one of those stories. And this is a story that's contrasting Yahweh to Marduk. And the acts of Yahweh, the supreme god, against Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. So we see this description of creation being this ordered process rather than just something that came out of this, the result of a chaotic battle. We see God making creation not out of chaos like, you know, the Enuma Elish states with Marduk, but that God is making creation kind of around chaos, that God's making it in spite of chaos, that Creation, in a way, is shaming chaos. And then, as we go further into this, you know, we have the creation of life, you know, vegetation. We have the creation of marine life and birds. We have the creation of beasts of the earth. And then, it culminates in mankind. So, going to verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God makes mankind, and God doesn't make man out of the blood of some lesser God. He makes humanity with his own image. And then God doesn't make man as slaves to him. I mean, sure, you know, as humanity created by God, we do believe that we are made to serve God, but that we're not doing so as slaves. We're doing so as people that, as not only working for God, but working with God in a sense that God sets humanity on the earth to rule, to rule over the fishes, see the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So, you know, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so we have this, you know, repeated emphasis of God creating humanity in his own image. And then here we have this purpose given to mankind, starting from verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the earth, of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So, God gives mankind this mandate, this permission to rule. He doesn't make them as slaves. He makes them as his rulers of the earth that he created. He entrusts creation to them. And they're not, like I said, they're not made just from material from a lesser heavenly being, that they're made from his own image. So we have this incredible connection with God. And that while we serve God, we have this mandate from God to rule. It's this beautiful thing that we have here and shows, I think, the love of God for us and the trust that God does place in humanity here. <clears throat> so, of course, Genesis 1, it caps off with the creation of humanity. And then it focuses in on that in Genesis 2, where you have this kind of a, almost a romantic poem. First, the romance between God and man. In a sense, you have this very intimate creation. And then it caps off in a romance between man and woman. And I think this is a great place to ask this question with the idea of humanity in the creation story. Were Adam and Eve literal people? Were they historical people? Or were they more kind of a fable device? Were they more figurative? And honestly, I think we can be both open to both possibilities. I think the point is made either way. And I think we have an interesting thing to look at here, too, that this is a story made by Israel, by God's people, especially likely during a time when they're fighting for their identity. 
And we have this parallel to Israel, I think, in humanity created here, that God creates this world, and that out of that creation that God creates this chosen people, these special beings to whom he grants his image, the Imago Dei. He has this chosen and beloved people. He gives them a task to represent God in the world, to have dominion over the world in his name. And then later on in chapter 2, he gives them laws for which they're supposed to obey. So, I think we see this parallel here between mankind created and between Israel. God, you know, who function in the Old Testament as God's chosen people through which God will bless the whole earth. And then, of course, the very beginning of Genesis 2, I think, is where you have what's essentially the ending of Genesis 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. So this first creation narrative, it caps off, of course, with the Sabbath, with the seventh day. So, you know, I've heard it explained, its presence here, one, day, one way that Adam and Eve's first day of life may have very well indeed been a day of rest. And also, too, like you have the Sabbath that's a commandment for, for the Jewish people. But it's also, throughout history, one of their identifiers. You know, as when you get past the diaspora, where the, the Jews spreading out throughout the world, throughout the Greco-Roman world, you had some people that called the Jews lazy because they took a day um, for rest. They took a day to do no work. And, of course, this day, the Sabbath day, it's coming out of the Exodus where their identity was previously as slaves, that they were only viewed as um, <clears throat> as commodities for which to do work. And then God uses the Sabbath to restore personhood to them, to, to give them rest, to give them this idea, a place to just be, to recover themselves. And we see an allusion to the Sabbath right here, which is this moniker, of course, of the Jewish people, and that the Sabbath is this beautiful, holy time to back away from rest, and that God partakes in it with them here. So, of course, we see a pointing to their identity here, and also this idea of Sabbath as a gift. And, of course, you know, Jesus, during his ministry, he makes it a point as well when he's accosted for healing on the Sabbath. He makes a statement that the um, <clears throat> that the Sabbath, that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made for man. That Sabbath is this gift, and that creation is also, in a way, this gift to humanity. That the image of God is given to humanity. And so we see these declarations of love that... God has for his creation. And then when we get into Genesis 2, we see just this deeper view of the intimacy and the love that God has for his creation. So when we get into Genesis 2, 
I look at this as the humanity-centric version of creation, whereas I kind of see Genesis 1 as the earth-centric version of creation. You know, with Genesis 1, you see more of the method by God makes the world, and in Genesis 2, you kind of get this magnifying glass where you view this relation between God and man, and you see a lot more of man than the rest of the creation in Genesis 2. So, you know, after the um, little bit about the Sabbath that we just covered, you know, you start out, uh, starting from verse 4 in ch chapter 2, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. So, starting out there, you know, we see this idea, you know, has the vegetation come about yet? And, you know, we see this whole thing, you know, no, no rain had yet come, and mists from the ground are watering the earth. And, of course, you know, growing up, especially in more fundamentalist traditions, you know, you'd look at this and think, you know, well, duh, the flood. <laughs> so, is this the way we're supposed to look at it, though? Or is there another way to look at it? So, I mean, I definitely see a lot of meaning in that one part in verse 5. And there was no man to work the ground. So, you know, no shrub of the field had yet grown. No plant of the field had sprouted. The Lord had not made it rain. There was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up and water the ground. So, I see this as a very agricultural view. Because, you know, of course, you had very agrarian societies during this time. You know, agriculture is very much the way of life for this time. And so perhaps it was this case that no man had yet worked the ground. No man had yet grown a shrub of the field or a plant of the field. And that, you know, since man had not yet come about to work the ground, that, you know, one of the greatest advances of agricultural agriculture had not yet come irrigation. So, of course, God, you know, says God had not yet made it rain. There's no man to work the ground, but that mist would come up and water the ground. So, no man to work the ground, no man to direct water to the ground or to prepare fields to receive rain. Instead, God's kind of doing a little bit of the work of tending creation before man is made to tend it, it seems. So I think we have this um, kind of very agricultural view right here in this preview of man's role in the world coming out. And so then we have this very powerful verse right here, verse 7, chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So... You know, as contrasted to the creation of the other animals that you saw in Genesis 1, they're more or less spoken into existence by the poem that you have, whether it's by, um, whether it was just boom and then it happened, or whether it's throughout the course of evolution, you see this very intimate 
creation of man, that God forms the man from the dust of the ground, that God breathes the breath of life into his nostrils, like almost this life breath, you know, CPR life breath, or this kiss of life. And then the man becomes a living being through that. And of course, you know, we saw earlier that the image of God is um, imparted into man. So you see this already, this very intimate, loving relationship, you know, between God and man right there in the creation of man. And of course, you know, like we were saying earlier, like, is this, um, is this literal or is this figurative? And I mean, either way, it doesn't matter because either way, we have this picture of this very special relationship between God and man, this special intimacy between God and man. And it's, you know, it's this kind of intimacy that you don't have in the, you know, Enuma Elish view of the creation that we were covering where mankind are just slaves of the gods. You know, even though we are here to serve God, we also have this special relationship with God, this intimacy with God that's shown here in the intimacy between God and man. I mean, that's something very beautiful and very meaningful to see right here. So then going from there, you have this um, geography of Eden. <clears throat> the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord caused... The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of the four rivers. The, f the name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedelium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. So, there's kind of this um, idea of the geography of Eden. Of course, you know, two of these rivers we know well, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The other two, you know, Pishon and Gihon, they're... Um, kind of more or less lost, which, you know, there there's theories of how that happened, you know, continental drift or other things that come into play. But again, you know, are we talking figurative or are we, are we talking literal? You know, we have with Eden this idea of paradise, this place that God puts man to work the creation, to... um till to till the ground to work the earth to cause these plants to grow as we'll see later as we'll see later to care for tend to and name the animals it's this special area where god put places his stewards to do their work of tending to creation almost this uh, temple and so looking at um eden you know there's different places we get the etymology there's the um akkadian word edinu or Edin from the Sumerian language, with these meaning things like plain or step. And then there's also this Arabic word, Saki Jaidin, so Edin at the end of it, which means well watered. And then, of course, Eden is also often referred to as paradise, which we get from the, the Hebrew word Pardes, 
meaning paradise or you know, meaning orchard. So, so we have this, you know, beautiful, wonderful place that God's created, and it's like this pinnacle place of his creation that man comes into, and that, of course, God has, and man share this special relationship. So we kind of see Eden as a sort of temple in creation, and that Adam is given a job as the keeper of that temple. And you also see, you know, this mandate that he's given. So starting from verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the men, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Of course, you know, we get a bit of unfortunate foreshadowing here. But there's this mandate that, you know, you're free to have any tree of the garden, but not this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat from it, you'll die. So you know, there's questions we could ask about it, you know. Obviously, you know, you know, the question we've been asking, is this figurative or is this literal? Which, I mean, once again, does it matter? You know, we get means from both. But, you know, let's kind of play with the literal side for a little bit. So why would this tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil be, you know, be kept from humanity? Why would God mandate, hey, you can have all the rest of this, just not this one thing? You know I mean... Is it, the, is it the possibility that the full knowledge of good and evil, the full knowledge of everything, is it too much for humanity to handle? Or is it this um, or is it this one idea, you know, there's this one idea I've been entertaining for a while, and I think it kind of resonates with me, the idea that, you know, God points to the rest of the trees in the garden bearing fruit, God says, you know, all of these are yours, but this one is mine. You know, is is there a, an idea of a necessary temptation that has to be a sort of moral choice? And, of course, you know, once again, I think we get this idea of, um, of man, of humanity, kind of this parallel for Israel, especially, too, when you get into the... Uh, uh, first and second temple periods that Jerusalem is, you know, houses the temple, which is seen as the house of God. And, a call, and of course, the nation of Israel, you know, during during the Exodus that they carry with them the tabernacle. And this is also seen as the place of God that, you know, the nation of Israel, they're believed to house the very presence of God, that they are, that God goes with them, that they are kind of the keepers of God. Of course, you'll also see kind of a view of within that, of the Levites, as the, the ones who keep the temple, who work the temple, who sort of um, are the people of the presence of God. And that there are these uh, mandates that they are given, too, that, um, that, of course, you have the law that's given, to Israel and that they are commanded to keep the law. And so you have this like mandate that's given to mankind to sort of keep this law as they tend to this temple. And you know, I mean, like we said, I mean, is it figurative? Is it is it literal? Either way doesn't matter because we get this same point 
from either way that mankind is given this special position, mankind is given this special job, and there are certain rules that come with it. And God seems to place this confidence in mankind here. And so, as we go on from here, that um, mankind has this job, but as we see that it's not good for him to do this job alone. And so, how we get from there is kind of this expansion on creation that we don't see man as a solitary creature. We see him as a social creature. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, that we almost kind of have this um, idea of a, a romantic poem in chapter two, and that it starts off as almost this kind of like, in a sense, a romance, you know, a very intimate relationship between God and man. And as we'll see coming up here, that that romantic relationship expands. So we get to verse 18 in chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So, of course, this is where we get to, this is where we approach the creation of woman, the creation of Eve. And what we see here is a search for man's equal. And as we go farther into here, the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So, so we have this view of Adam, besides tending the plants in Eden, that he's also, his job is also expanded to tending the animals, and that he's looking through all these animals, he's giving these animals names, but there's nothing in this animal creation that corresponds to him. There's nothing that's his equal. And of course, God can't be his equal because God is supreme and Adam is of the created order. And nothing in these animals can't, can be his equal that um, the animals are in his care. So where is he going to find that equal? So we get to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So we see the creation of woman, of Eve, from a part, from a part of man. And I don't believe we're supposed to get it in, in the sense that, you know, since she's made from a part of a man that she's supposed to be subservient to a man. I, I think that's just bull hockey. That it's this view that woman is made of the same stuff that man is, that she's made of the same stock, of the same earth, of the same material, of the same image and spirit of which man is made. And that there's also this beauty and intimacy in which she is made. And then you know, if we look back at verse 18... We see, you know, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. 
So with that corresponding helper in the Hebrew, there's this very loaded term, Ezer Kenegdo. And it's this combination of these two words. So Ezer is this word for help and it's often attributed in scripture to God. And um, sometimes, you know, in complementarian beliefs, we see this view of that, of the trying to establish this hierarchy of man over woman because woman was supposedly created as a helper to man as to be kind of like subservient to him which no no i i, I don't hold with that i don't agree with that and especially too how the way we because of the way we see this word azer in two other particular areas uh one place we see it is in psalm 10 verse 14 you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper to the fatherless. So we kind of see this very, um, this helper is almost this like life-saving view. And then we see another very loaded use of the word azer in Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. How happy you are, Israel! Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is the shield that protects you. It's right there. We see it in the shield. He is the shield that protects you, the sword you boast in. Your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread on their backs. So, you know, it's a very loaded language with this word azer. And then kinegdo kind of refers to this, you know, correspondence, this mirror image. So you have this, like, life-saving help, this rescuing you know, help this rescuing help that is a mere image that is correspondent to the man. And, uh, John Eldridge of Ransom Heart Ministries, he's a writer of books like The Sacred Romance, Wild at Heart, All Things New. He um, he identifies Azer Connecto as a lifesaver and as an ally to Adam, not as a servant or just a helper or some sort of glorified secretary, but as his ally as someone who's um, there, to, there to help each other, that she's someone that's got a six, you know, as he does for her. So, like, I, I don't think of this idea as someone being, like, you know, this helper or assistant to man. I kind of see it as, like, one, as Wonder Woman as to Superman, that somebody who's, you know, powerful in her own right, somebody who... Um, has a special role and you know somebody that's equal to him somebody can stand you know toe to toe to <clears throat> to him and i believe there's this equality there and so you have man and woman united and kind of this culmination of creation that they're the two sides of the same coin in the image of god and um you know we have this romance in what I think is kind of this romance poem in Genesis 2 that it shifts from this kind of very beautiful intimate relationship between man and God to this intimacy between man and woman we see it you know in verse 23 the man said this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh this one will be called woman for she was taken from man and so you know you know, even though we have this, you know, whole like she'll be called woman because she was taken from man. I don't, I don't see it as um, right to view it as this like sub level of man. Again, you have someone who's 
correspondent to man, who's equal, mirror image of man. But I see it as this like declaration of joy. This one at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is someone who's the same as me, it's someone just like me. And there's this joy, I think, that we see expressed on the part of Adam that someone who fits him, someone to confide in, someone to be with, someone uh, to help to help him and for him to help her, you know, someone equal to him, someone at his level, someone made of the same stuff that he is made of, someone, um, you know, the two of them can share in this um, keeper of the temple of Eden duty that God has given to him. Like it's, I think it's this joy. I'm not alone anymore. And so you kind of see this fable view too at the end of it that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So it's kind of this like, you know, like, like I said, this fable view of it, this idea of, you know, why there is marriage. And, um, but I think there's, um, something bigger than that. You know, we got to remember we're in like this near, this old near Eastern view that we're seeing from this, but I think there's something bigger on that that we'll touch in a little bit. And of course, uh, chapter two ends, both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. So you have this perfect intimacy, intimacy they share with God an intimacy that they share with each other. And you know, there's no shame. It's this beautiful pre-fall world where there, there's no shame in being naked. There's no tension. There's no, you know, there's no carnage, no war, no violence. It's, um, man fulfilling, man and woman fulfilling the duty that God has given them to keep and manage creation, to manage just the temple of creation, to rule, to tend the, the fields of the earth, to tend the plants, to rule over the animals. And you have this done in perfect sync at this point. But, so what's the point of all this? Well, I think... Well, we definitely get, you know, from Genesis 1 and 2, especially, you know, God loves his creation, every part of it, and God especially loves humanity. God has a special intimacy with humanity, and that humanity is not just another creature, that humanity exists for a reason, you know, to tend this creation, to tend this... Um, to be the keepers of this temple of the creation, to bear the image of God. And that man and woman are made, you know, you know, man and woman, humanity, are made for one another. They're made to correspond to each other. But I don't think this just reflects, you know, the romance between this romance of man and woman or anything like that. I think it reflects this idea that we are social beings. You know, I saw this one understanding once of this idea that you see Throughout Genesis chapters 1 through 3, you see different aspects of humanity that in Gen chapter 1, you see the physical aspect of humanity. Then in chapter 2, you see the social aspect. In chapter 3, albeit it kind of goes off the rails, you see the ethical aspect of humanity. And, you know, we see right now that people are social creatures that were made for one another, that it's God didn't design us as solitary beings he saw us as, you know he made us for community he made the 
he made us as bearers of the image of God to connect with one another and to increase that image, to glorify that image with one another and to work with one another in in the keeping of this world, in the managing of this world, in the keeping of this uh, temple that he sets up in Eden. And there's this, um, you know, there's this love that flows in there and that we're made to be loved and we're also made to love, to made to love God, made to love creation and made to love each other. So, and we see once again here, I think humanity being this parallel to Israel. These people that are in Adam and Eve here that are beloved by God, that they're these emissaries of God, the keepers and stewards of God's space. They're given this law to follow, you know, albeit just one rule. So, you know, later on we kind of have this, you had one job moment. But nevertheless, they're given this law to follow. And there's this communal emphasis that's um, made between them. They, um, they exist for one another. They exist to care for one another. They are to um, have this job of keeping and managing creation as a team. They're made to work with one another. And um, this isn't supposed to be some hierarchical relationship, I believe. This is made to be equal. And you will see later, after the fall, that unfortunately that equality becomes broken. And then later on in the history of Israel, you'll see in places like Judges and in Kings that um, this community in Israel, this um, communal life does to be designed, that it unfortunately splinters, it breaks, and that there's a lot of chaos that unfortunately comes from that. But I think um, these are things that were made to draw from the creation story as a whole, that God loves his creation. God especially loves humanity. Humanity is special. Humanity has a purpose. And that we're made for each other. And um, I think whether you want to look at this as uh, young earth or old earth, whether you want to look at this as literal or figurative, I think it, it's still in common ends at that point. God loves his creation. God especially loves humanity. And that humanity is made to be in community with one another. So, I mean, no matter what view we come we come at, I think we can end up at that view and see the love that God has for his creation, the love that God, God especially has for us, and the special meaning and purpose that humanity has here. Thank you for listening to the Open-Handed Bible Podcast, a program dedicated to engaging scripture, embracing mystery and ambiguity, and uncovering a deeper, richer story. If you decide you actually like this show, go ahead and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Leave us some stars, leave us a review, leave some comments, whatever you like. If you don't like this show, eh, maybe rethink your life choices a little bit. Just saying. Be on the lookout for our next episode, where we'll talk about the fall of man. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you later.